Hello, my name is Dave Graney. I am an underworld musician of many years standing. I'm here to ask you to tune in to my fellow traveller, my comrade, Radio Caram. Grassroots Hi-Fi is recorded and produced on Bunurong Country and pays its respects to the elders of past, present and emerging. Hello and welcome to episode 2 of Grassroots Hi-Fi. My name's Dave Junior Jupp and you're tuned into Radio Karen. Apologies for the delay on episode 2. Been quite busy, been on holidays, got a few projects on the go as well, so uh, I've struggled to get into the, the studio and uh, get some podcast time in. Been pretty busy in the garden as well, got some chookies, some little fluffy dinosaur girls um, about three weeks ago, and I've uh, been getting about four eggs a day. Um, first week they came, I was getting nothing, but. Uh, had to do some minor alterations to the uh, the chicken coop and uh, they're nice and happy and I've got heaps of eggs to eat. Um, I've also been busy with some pretty interesting gardening projects around the yard as well. Um, I killed my front lawn last year and I've been managing the weeds ever since. Um, over autumn I put in 50 microlina, aka weeping grass. It's a native type of grass. A um, few kangaroos and a few few kangaroo grasses, that is, not kangaroos. I haven't got a big enough yard for that. Um, and some power, some power grasses. Um, that's a native um, type of grass as well. It comes out in a nice green puff. Uh, they look really great. Um, so the plan is to let these native grasses establish and uh, the weeping grass, they tend to recruit pretty easily. Uh, they'll be seeding a few of them are starting to seed now I've ha- I have had to fill in a few gaps with some extra um, patches of microlina but the, the end goal is to replicate a local grassland where soon hopefully when it fills out I'll be able to mow it and it'll be similar to like a lawn that's been uh, grazed by macropods like kangaroos and wallabies basically so it'll be this nice green lawn with these beautiful puffs power grasses popping out and uh look you know personally i hate introduced grass it's, it's a monoculture it's boring you've got to mow that stuff every sunday and that is an absolute pain in the ass because i've got so much better things to do on a sunday morning than get out a bloody loud mower and have to mow the lawn and get rid of the clippings half it goes down the drain so so that's why i killed my old grass and now i'm introducing a native grassland or local grasses and uh that's going to be really good uh if you want to see some of the photos you can of course go to i've put some on a, uh, a facebook page that i have called victorian indigenous gardeners um have a look on that i've put some photos up on that uh, a few weeks ago but um check it out it's a good page anyway um enough about me we're going to talk about our next guest George Paris is a land ecology restoration advisor. He's done some fantastic work in his life. He's been in the industry for a long time. And a lot of his uh, great work was at uh, La Trobe University Wildlife Sanctuary. 
which I believe is now known as Nanguk Tambourie Wildlife Sanctuary. And I caught up with him at the Radio Karam stations to chat about the importance of creating habitat for wildlife. George Paras, thank you so much for coming on Grassroots Hi-Fi. Yes, and good to see you, Dave. Uh, yeah, so it's been some years since I've bumped into you, and I had no idea back then that you were so enmeshed in the uh, Indigenous revegetation field, yeah. and that you're the man behind some very good uh, community Facebook pages and spreading and sharing information. Thanks a lot, mate. Thanks a lot. Yeah, it's, a, it's an honour to have you on the show. We've been had a bit of banter on Facebook before and all that, and I know you, you know your stuff about and, um, restoration and you know your stuff up north and where you live. So I'd just like to just like to know how'd you get started in in um, in this in this field of look, look, Dave. I, I you say I know my stuff. I'm still learning, so there's things to learn People right throughout life. Always learning, and. My career in uh, of four decades in bushland restoration, wetland restoration, was almost accidental. You know, I had a passion for fishing in high school. I became interested in native freshwater fish. I ended up at La Trobe University in 1980 yeah. studying agricultural science. And as an undergraduate, one of my uh, animal sciences lecturers knew that I knew a lot about fish. And he happened to be a, a Scottish uh, veterinary, veterinarian and animal scientist. And he, so he sat on this committee of the Latrobe University Wildlife Reserves, as it then was. And they were doing a lot of great stuff back then, the restorations, the pioneers of the Indigenous uh, restoration movement in Melbourne and regrowing woodlands and grassy woodlands and wetlands, constructed wetlands. And he said, look, you should go up there and introduce yourself to the ranger up there. He knows a lot about plants, but not much about fish. See if we can get some decent fish in the joint. Yeah. You know, he had aspirations that he might be able to go up there at lunchtime and fly fish or something yeah. for native fish. And uh, I went up there and introduced myself to the then head ranger, the late Rod Foster, who was really, you know, a guru, one of the pioneers of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, he had a very harsh view of volunteers. You had to sort of prove your worth. You you were, <laughs> you were given some pretty horrible jobs. Yeah. And a lot of it is. It's, uh, you know, that sustained effort, yeah. uh, dealing with rubbish, dealing with weeds, different, you know, assisting the restoration of nature yeah. through uh, fixing up the impacts. So did you start out as a volunteer there? Yeah, I started as a volunteer. I never imagined I'd ever be working in the field because agricultural science was my gig. Yeah. And uh, but I ended up joining, you know, friends groups. I I joined various naturalist groups. Mm-hmm. There was a student naturalist society called the had this pompous name, the Ecological Society. <laughs> and I uh, started volunteering even before I had a car. I I I would pester my brother to take me bush. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, I joined the Australian Trust for Conservation Volunteers, which is today known as Conservation Volunteers Australia. So okay. I'd jump into minibuses and go off and various sort of uh, working bees pulling broom at Mount Macedon or some part of Gippsland doing some boardwalk reconstruction. Yeah. And it was uh, really by accident. Sadly, uh, Rod Foster died in 1985 in a house fire. Mm. And um, his assistant ranger got the head ranger job and they were looking for an assistant ranger. And because I'd helped hold the fort a bit, I actually went through a formal interview and I ended up working in a field that I used to volunteer in. Right. 
and yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. So uh, I never ceased my involvement in a whole lot of voluntary organisations, and that's yeah. the beautiful thing about conservation and environment in Victoria. Yeah. It's so pluralistic. There are so many groups from the Field Naturalist Club of Victoria. If you join that's like joining eight clubs. You know, there's a geology yeah. group, a fauna group, a botany group, a microscopy group, a bat group, a marine group. Uh, yeah. Yeah, so so there's groups like that, but in every sort of part of Melbourne and Victoria, there's everything from land care groups and rural areas yeah. to friends groups and local conservation societies. And you meet some great people, um, you know, some stalwarts. I met had some great mentors. Yeah. Some passed away. People who grew up in the Great Depression, mm-hmm. you know, and served in World War Two, and yeah. found in the post-war years uh, important, you know, value in committing in a community sense to improving yeah. your area, including the environment. So there's testimony that, like, you know, volunteering to get into the industry of conservation is, you know, in many cases a good path to actually get a, a job? Oh, look, I would say it's more than that. It's, it's essential. Yeah. I look at uh, university students. I, I worked at La Trobe University at the Wildlife Reserves Department for uh, over 36 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had a lot of dealings with researchers, their postgraduate students, their honours students. I've met, um, sadly, honours and postgraduate students that were studying a particular plant say or a particular aspect of a particular plant or its physiology yeah and would walk past it and not know anything about it or recognize it in the field right so field competencies uh, is something that's essential for anyone wanting a career yeah it's the street credibility of science yeah and uh, the the people that have done best even in academia even you know I know people that have risen up to professor levels and very published the the ones that have done best vocationally whether it's in the academic field or in the environmental restoration or management field or whatever in any vocation have been the ones that had that uh out of um study mm-hmm. commitment yeah. to community engagement yeah so they were getting out there with field nats with other friends groups yeah and um becoming connected with people and becoming connected with nature yeah. in a way that they had a panoramic view, not a sort of um, uh, silo view a, uh, on particular taxa that they were interested in. So mm. I've got great mates. One of my mates is, you know, arguably the butterfly expert of Australia. Yeah. But he's equally adept in the bush, looking at plants, weeds, yeah. reptiles. Looking he, at the whole picture. The basically. whole picture. And he yeah. was one of the volunteers back then in that day in the early mm. 80s, you know. Yeah. So... You can't be too narrow in your focus, yeah. and you've got to have strict credibility. Yeah. So what I'm hoping to talk about today is a little bit about um, basically restoration from a, a garden aspect and also a, a broadacre type of aspect. So for anyone that you know wants to get an indigenous habitat garden or they've got a block of land or something like that, it's all grass or they've got a... a a house that's uh, you know your typical Mediterranean backyard with a with a lemon tree and, and fig tree and that's all it and that's all there is. Where, where do they actually start to sort of like you know uh, get their get what they want? That's going to be something that provides habitat all round and looks great as well. Look, uh, 
you've got to start understanding some of the functions mm-hmm. that are, go on in nature, in the Australian ecosystem, in the local ecosystem, and you've got to use every opportunity to recreate function in the garden, ecological function. Mm-hmm. Now, it's interesting you say you're the, the backyard with a lemon tree in the Mediterranean garden. I mean, I'm a migrant to this country. Yeah. We grew up in tiny little sort of suburban Yarraville blocks that are the workers' cottages that had very little garden. Yeah. Eventually, you know, my folks got out of there. They, you know, they were surrounded by you know, different uh, breezes of pollution, depending which way the prevailing winds were blowing every summer night. Yeah. And we moved to Heidelberg in 82. Yeah. And they got a big place there. It's next to an open space reserve. And by that stage, I was volunteering the field. So I started planting the garden up. Yeah. with trees and shrubs, indigenous to the Melbourne area, things that I got from the range at La Trobe and mm-hmm. so on. And they've got this great garden there in their 90s now and they're still living there and it's this amazing living ecosystem yeah. with veggie patches in, yeah. a, in amongst it. Yeah, that's good. And some of our relatives from Brunswick would come out and say to my dad, John, lovely garden, but what's with the trees? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and... Yeah. and uh, even to this date, in our home garden, McLeod, my wife and I, we, we've got Indigenous trees that we've grown, you know, that are now sort of over 30 years old. We've got Indigenous parts of the garden, that, you know, yeah. the front mainly, but bits and pieces of these elements in the back. Yeah. And we've got a great veggie patch for, you know, for, for us, you know, family-sized veggie patch. Yeah. And we've even got, you know, pretty good bird life, insect life. Uh, insectivorous bats we've even got you know gliders breeding two years running now yeah in our garden in mcleod in mcleod and and gliding over you know the unit behind us to the nearest park yeah and other people in the rosanna area have you know uh who've been participating in this gardening and put up nesting boxes for sugar gliders which are now Kreft's gliders, because the species has been split up three ways. Okay. So there's people uh, living, you know, like up to two kilometres from bushland, which had these populations, where through urban wildlife corridors and some surviving canopy trees and augmented canopy Mm -hmm. through the replanting that people have been doing in that area, Mm -hmm. they've now got, you know, sort of glider populations that have radiated out, something like, you know, three or four or five kilometres from wow. Greswell Forest yeah. following the plantings yeah. and the connected canopies yeah. that still allow for their movement. Yeah. I think probably something to really consider why that is really important. Obviously, you're supporting a population of a native animal, but, like, if there was a bushfire that went through and wiped out most of that adjoining area, they've got somewhere to fall back on. Yeah, and it's that's dispersal, recruitment, um, genetic diversity, strong populations. Mm. I mean, you know, one area that we'd never seen powerful owls, the recovery of that population of gliders means that, and other possums are gliders, yeah. possums and so on, yeah. uh, means that there's owls hanging around. And yeah, wow. they're taking them. Yeah. Yeah, but what I meant to say about our garden, mm-hmm. in all the years that we've been in this house in McLeod, we've never had brush-tailed possums or ring-tailed possums attack our food plants, touch wood. I wish I could say the same. Yep. And how <laughs> often I do I hear it? How often do I hear it that, uh, you know, oh, you know, I've given up on gardening, my veggie patch, my fruit trees, whatever. Yeah. 
So in the same garden as my fruit trees, I'm watching brush tails and ring tails, but they're up in the canopy. Yeah. They've had no pressure, at our place at least, mm. to move down to the food garden. Yeah. So in the absence of their natural tucker, yeah. wildlife that survive in suburbia will turn in desperation to the lush things we grow and water and irrigate and fertilise and whatever. And, and I can say that with a straight face. It's yeah. just not happening. I've got a lot of hungry possums in my area and you can see there's trees that have just been destroyed and uh, they do like my veggies too. So. Yeah, it's the collective uh, you know, habitat transition yeah. that they're facing yeah. and so they're you know, ecological refugees. We'll be back with George in a moment, but for now I'm going to play you some Jamaican Foundation dancehall. This is Barrington Levy with Murderer. Hi, this is Matt Joe Gow, and you're listening to Radio Karam, which is local community internet radio. And uh, we were having a chat about community radio earlier and how important it is to Melbourne, how important it is to the scene here, the music scene, but also the wider community. So check out Radio Karam, tune in. Hello and welcome back to Grassroots Hi-Fi. The track you were just listening to then was Greetings from Half Pint. That comes back from 1984. Early foundation dance hall there. That's where pretty much where it all began. And that came off a 12-inch record on Powerhouse. And if you're listening to this podcast on Spotify, you might be wondering why the music wasn't there and i'm back announcing a track you didn't hear that's because on spotify there's different licensing laws uh if you want the full podcast you've got to go to the radio Karam website and while you're at it you can check out all those other amazing shows at the start of that bracket i played murderer from barrington levy and that was released back in 1984 and that came out on a record a 12 inch uh from a record company called jar life Barrington Levy was a Jamaican artist uh, that some considered him to be one of the founding fathers of Dancehall. He's probably more uh, noted for his release Here I Come, which came out a year after uh, Murderer and it reached uh, 41 of the UK singles chart. So there you go. Stay tuned, folks, because we're going to be talking to George again now. And uh, we're going to be talking about a lot of interesting things, uh, mostly trees, habitat trees, the best habitat trees for your yard, what suits your EVC the most and what suits your local critters the most. You're listening to Radio Karam. So um, what do you think? So if we, if we look at like indigenous gardening in layers, if we're going to talk from like you've got your ground layer, that's, that's your scramblers and your small shrubs, and grasses and sedges and all that type of thing. Then you've got your shrub layer, which is yeah, obviously shrubs in the middle, and you've got your canopy on the top. What, what do you think is one of the most important layers of that to sort of like put into your garden? Well, I've got a list here, and I'm going to run through it. Okay. And you will be examined at the end of it. <laughs> no, 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 it's not like that at all. But I, I, I've tried to, over the years, think about the different contributions. And let's just focus on birds yep. birds is an example but they tell part of the wider story of what's going on mm-hmm. so everyone knows now that some birds like nectar some birds like fruit mm-hmm. but what birds also like and often gets overlooked 
is something with a bit more protein. Yeah. A better crunch. Yeah. And that's the insect component of their diet. Yeah. So no honey eater is strictly a honey eater. Mm. He's an insectivore. Yeah. And all the fruit-eating birds as well, they are insectivores as well. So we need to start thinking about the different layers. I'm going to start at the top layer. Okay. The trees, the yep. large trees, yep. the eucalypts that dominate the landscape. Now, take, for example, in parts of Melbourne, you might know... A common type of things is plains, grassy woodland dominated by river red gum. But when you go to these remnants and you look at them, they're not just river red gum. So in the Creek Valley, you might have uh, manna gum. Mm -hmm. In some Creek Valleys, you might have swamp gum. Mm -hmm. In other parts of Melbourne, swamp gum is a ridge dryland species on the ridges. Okay. And you might get, um, as you get into dry hills of Melbourne, <coughs> you might get red box, yeah, yellow box. Yeah. You might, in some of the really dry remnants, have even iron bark, okay. the local eucalyptus tricarpa. Yep. And in parts of Melbourne like Yarra Bend, Plenty Gorge, elsewhere, dotted through the landscape, was a local endemic subspecies of yellow gum yeah. called the Melbourne yellow gum. Eucalyptus right. leucoxylin, right. subspecies... Conata, yep. and it occurs all the way west. I was in Stiglitz yeah. uh, last week with the Field Naturalist Club Botany Group, Brisbane Rangers. It occurs up near Sunbury, yep. those sort of areas. They they look a lot like red gums, don't they? They certainly do. Yeah, and sometimes yeah. you know, you you look at uh, trees, and it's only when you start staring at them for a few years together with Keys and other naturalists mm. that you start getting their overall feel for them. Mm-hmm. And so they, you know, they. You sometimes then revisit trees that you thought were something, or that you've realised there was something else. Yeah, there are things like uh, Eucalyptus yarrancis, the yarra gum, right? And there's even an endemic one to the Melbourne area called the Studley Park gum. Studley Eucaly- Park gum. Eucalyptus studliensis described in 1910, and in the post-war years, it demoted to just a oh, an aberrant hybrid until I started finding entire populations of them up at Simpson Barracks and Watsonia. And, okay. And I dragged uh, local council officers and the botanist David Cameron out there and we found hundreds of yeah. all age class, some up to seven centuries old. Wow. So the thing I want to talk about eucalypts is we depend on having a variety of eucalypts so that in different seasons, either within a species or whatever, there is always something flowering. So in restoring the ecosystem, we've got to restore the canopy of eucalypts, not just in one backyard, but in a neighbor, neighborhood context, yeah. in a you know, regional or in a council level. And you know, we know local government uh, have got lists of these things, you know, things that are, should be in your area. We also know that some areas we've created, like, you know, wetter areas because of urban runoff. Mm-hmm. And we know some areas are now drier because of climate change or because of clearing of adjacent habitat. So in gardening, you can actually put things of drier sites on a site, which is artificially drier because there's been some change. Mm-hmm. could be a, a mound of fill or something. Mm-hmm. And we've got areas that are wetter where the ephemeral creeks are now more permanent because of the hard surfaces and runoff or whatever. And we need to get the big drinkers in there. Mm. You know, the red gums, the managums, etc. So we need to work collectively beyond our own garden to recreate that canopy of eucalypts 
and the nectar flow. But that's simplistic. It's not just about nectar. Mm-hmm. We know some of the big local indigenous nectar-producing keystone species. Mm-hmm. You know, groups of plants or plants that we know give a lot yeah. in that regard. Yeah. And they are the banksias, which have become almost wiped out because of changed fire regimes and their palatability to grazing stock, mm. native and introduced, cattle and that sort of thing. So, you know, up in the northern Melbourne area, there was a tree form of the banksia, marginata, yeah. referred to as honeysuckle. Yeah. Throughout the woodlands, the grassy woodlands, settled or invaded by European colonists in the sheep grazing and cattle grazing history, the banksia tree form of marg- banksia marginata, known as honeysuckle, was effectively wiped out. And yet you see all these place names, Honeysuckle Lane, Honeysuckle Road, yeah. Honeysuckle Flat, on the old maps. So they, they were referring to the Banksias. Okay. In the same family as Banksias, you've got Hakias. Mm. All right? So um, well, you've also got Grevilleas, but the Grevilleas that were native to the Melbourne area are effectively... Yeah, there's, there's extinct. Not much. There's not much. So yeah. we've got garden cultivars, but they're not the indigenous stock. No. And so the hakers in particular, we're, we're blessed. One of the best barbed wire plants for birds yeah. is the bushy needlewood. Yeah. Hakia sericea. Yeah. But there's a few other prickly ones as well. And are they native to Melbourne as well, the sericea? Uh, well, sorry, it's been renamed. It's uh, now Hakia decurrens. Ah, I've got Subspecies, one. yeah. I've got one very similar. Yeah. I'm not sure Sorry. how local it is, though. But uh, Yeah, but you know what they're yeah. like. They're big on nectar. Yeah. But they're also big on spines. You've got the various wattles. So wattles are producing a lot of pollen. They're producing sugary exudates mm-hmm. from glands on their leaves. And their, their, their flowers, too, are sort of productive in that way. So uh, tea trees, you know, some of the, where the, the local the river tea trees... The, the um, Yarra Bergen, you know, the Kunzia that's native to the... Yeah. They're, they're, they're big nectar producers. You've got bottle brushes, mm-hmm. things like the swamp paper... Um, the Sweet. river bottle brush, yeah, the swamp paper bark, yeah. those sorts of things. Very big keystone species producing nectar. I've mentioned the local iron bark in particular, up in sort of dry parts near Melbourne and ridges. Mm-hmm. It's... Uh, famous for its sort of you know producing nectar mm-hmm. and uh the melbourne yellow gum endemics mm-hmm. but yellow box you know the name it's all in the name eucalyptus meliodora yeah in greek meli yeah. honey yeah. dora a gift or giving of honey and red box eucalyptus polyanthemos yeah. again greek poi yeah. many yeah anthemos many flowers yeah, I've so, got one. <laughs> yeah, so <laughs> we mentioned that on the um, on the uh, on Facebook at some time. Uh, yeah. That's right. So they're you know they're the big keystone species in that regard, but we've got a problem, Dave. Mm. We're focusing on flowers, and we think that you know providing for birds is all about providing nectar alone, mm. and we can create these ecosystems where it's mown lawns, and nectar giving trees. And the shift in the bird population in the last two decades has been horrible. We're creating a paradise for one particular native bird. I know it. Yep, you know it. Yep. Yep. You got every, it. Every time a bird of prey flies over, there's going to be Gangs. There's going to be five, at least five noisy miners tailing yep. it and hassling it. Yep. Kookaburra comes in, pays a visit, 
it's got a posse of yeah, noisy miners. The noisy it. miners. And they're yeah. a beautiful bird. They're a native honey eater. Yeah. And they've got amazing, you know, family structures, extended social structures, but they are the gangs. They are the bullies. Yeah. And everyone wants to kill them. They want to shoot them. They want to hurt them. You know, there's people, uh, there was a conference, you know, uh, 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 held up at Elstonwick mm-hmm. where some great naturalists active in this, you know, south of Melbourne area mm-hmm. who've been recording, G.F. Fitzpatrick, mm-hmm. you know, led the charge. You know, let's we've got to look at these birds. But we, um, we're not going to get the laws changed. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure whether culling one native plant is going to create, you know, choose for another native plant in the same way culling an native bird isn't the solution no. so we've got to think about what's happened that's caused the loss of diversity so i think we've got a problem with providing nectar alone mm-hmm. and a habitat which is simplified and these birds that you know in groups can look out for anything else entering their territory and go on the attack mm-hmm. so we've got to try and reverse that Mm-hmm. through our gardening, our collective gardening. And so one of the things we do know is that indigenous trees have their own palatability. They've got their own oils, their own chemical composition, yeah. their own unique biochemistry, which is recognised by the local insect fauna. So... A eucalypt is not just a nectar station. It's actually got leaves and bark and stems Mm -hmm. which provide for the local insect fauna. Mm -hmm. In fact, every local plant has got an array of insects that recognise it as tucker. You're talking about sort of lerps and things like that. We're talking about lerps and every other insect. It's not just the the visible lerps. There's skeletonizers. There's, you know, sawfly larvae. There's all sorts of hemipterans, Mm -hmm. bugs, bugs that live on bark, on old mature bark in all those crevices. There's spiders. There's you name it. So a tree can be a home for hundreds of taxa, hundreds of species of invertebrates. So when we plant a tree, for example, we pick a Queensland tree, let's say you work in local government, what are some of the big popular street trees that are native to other parts of Australia? Can you name a few? Well, say you've got like the the big fig trees that they like to put in parks. Yep. Um, Then you've got a lot of the... um, the bottle, the bottle trees, where they? Yeah, from? yeah, they're uh, um, brachycotton from Western yeah. Queensland. They love to chuck those in a lot of the. Oh time. yeah, now they yeah. And, and they're justifying and the it that that's our response to climate change. Yeah. Let's chuck in a few jacarandas. Yeah. They're not native to Australia at all, but they're almost like promoted just because Gosford has a jacaranda festival. Well, I always thought they were native. Everyone else thinks too. We've yeah. got a local tree manager that I won't name names. Yeah, and he's gone. You must, he's he must have shares in jacarandas or a fixation with them. It's Sounds Australian, like jacaranda. Um, yeah, yeah. It sounds no, it's, Australian. It's actually a colonial tree. Yeah, from the height of the British Empire, right. when the sun never set on the British Empire. Yeah, it, it comes from Central or North, uh, Central America, from Northern South America, and there were British colonies there. Yeah, and it became the choice of tree across the British Empire. Right. No officers' club where one would partake of their gin and tonics of an evening, would be complete without a jacaranda. Yes. 
And this colonial sort of uh, planting mentality took on so much in Australia that there's entire country towns where the number one tree you'll see is the jacaranda. And Gosford even has a jacaranda festival. So it's infused in us that this is an indigenous tree of zero, almost zero, ecological value. Mm. We're going to stop for a uh, musical intermission right now. I'm going to play a little bit more Jamaican music and I'm going to bring it back to where it nearly all began. I'm going to play some rock steady. This is Delroy Wilson with I'm Not a King. Hi, my name's Paul Kennedy, and I'm a sport reporter for the ABC, and when I'm not listening to the ABC, I listen to Radio Caram. Tune in and enjoy. Hello and welcome back. You're listening to Grassroots Hi-Fi, brought to you by Radio Caram. The track you just heard then was from John Holt and the Paragons, and that's titled, I've Got to Get Away. What I love most about that track is the way he sings so mournfully (laughs) about how bad his neighbour is. And I just think he must have the worst neighbour ever to write a song about it. Um, That was uh, Studio One? No, actually I think that came out on Striker Lee. I've I've lost the record. I've put it somewhere in a stack somewhere. But I believe it's on Striker Lee. It's a reissue from Japan. That's a 7-inch. The track you heard before that was the one and only Delroy Wilson with I'm Not A King. And that comes back from 1968. Yeah, 1968. So it's an old one. Uh, it's a Studio One 7-inch. Um, you notice it might have been a bit crackly, but I don't think it's actually an original pressing, but it's pretty close. We're going to get back to speaking to George, and we'll be talking about a bit of a prickly subject we need indigenous trees because they're recognised by the indigenous insects. And that way we're building up insect biodiversity. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about pest insects that are going to suck your blood or, mm-hmm. you know, harass you at night. We're talking about things that are uh, attached to those trees. We, it, different indigenous trees have different bark type. Different age trees have got different bark type. So they all contribute to invertebrate diversity. And we need to restore a thick understory as well. So let's not just get, you know, the street tree mentality with all its lateral prunes that ends up looking like a light pole with a bit of a, you know, mop on top. We need to get that um, diversity in the understory. We need harbours for the little birds. We need dense, prickly, spinescent Mm -hmm. shrubs. Mm -hmm. Things that you think, how do these little birds even duck in and out of some of these little dense spiny shrubs without impaling their eyeball. Could you name a couple of examples there for... Of shrubs or birds or well, both? prickly shrubs, I'd say. Oh, prickly so, shrubs. Yeah. You know, probably the, the, the hakea that I mentioned, the hakea decurrence, the bushy needlewood. Yeah. I have seen in one-year-old hakea decurrence, yeah. one-year-old planted ones, yeah. where there's been a number of them planted, I've seen nests of red-browed fire-tail finches yeah. and blue wrens in one-year-old shrubs. Wow. You know, these are yeah. plantings done with uh, community groups. Yeah. 
back in, you know, 1989. And uh, by the following year, all of the shrubs were full of nests. But there are other spiny snakes. So collectively, even some of the prickly tea tree, even though not very spiny, how it's planted. continentale. That's the one, yep. So some of the tea trees, um, some of the wattles, like on damper soils, the prickly moses, yep. acacia vaticillata, mm-hmm. on drier sites, you could almost grow it on a pile of crushed bricks, acacia paradoxa, mm-hmm. the hedge wattle. So, so good for habitat, but so bad for me as a ranger. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, oh, they hurt. They hurt if you're hand weeding on your... When, yeah, yeah the, yeah, the branch falls and then, like, you like, pull up something. It's like, oh, yeah. damn, right in the finger. Yeah, but, you know, other spiny shrubs like uh, Bacera spinosa. Yeah. It's got the spines. Yeah. It's also one of the uh, they're, few... They're a powerhouse, aren't they? Indigenous plants that flower in the peak of summer, drought. Yeah, yeah. So they're sustaining the adult insects... Mm-hmm. that are dependent on nectar. You know, butterflies, jewel beetles, you name it. Yeah. It can emanate wasps, yeah. parasitic wasps that control other insects. So you've got, um, um, what do you call it, a tree violet. Yeah. Can get a bit on the spiny side if it's on a dry site. Okay. Yeah, so Melocytus dentatus. But it also produces fruit, fruit that attracts all the small birds. Mm-hmm. Fruit that falls to the ground and feeds all your garden skinks and blue tongue lizards. Yeah. And uh, these pale aromatic flowers that have got this pulse of uh, perfume at night. They're pale coloured because they don't need to attract those daytime pollinators. They're targeting the night pollinators. A lot of our pale flowering shrubs do that. Okay. So there's a lot of dense prickly uh, shrubs. So, yeah, I mentioned the hedge wattle, sweet percent, tea trees, tree violet, prickly currant bush in wet areas, yeah. caprosma quadrifida. So, so that's a good one for sort of uh, Yarra ranges, sort of uh, yep. Dandenong ranges and all that. They're co- quite common, aren't they? They or? certainly are. They're along yeah. the Yarra and all the yeah. tributaries. Yeah. But now we've got all these damper tributaries, that, yeah. you know, tributary creeks that were, might have been dry creeks and only flow occasionally or just gullies low points in the landscape, but a lot of those are now permanently wet. So you, you, you go to the permanent rivers of our, your local area, you see what grows there, mm-hmm. and really where it can extend those true riparian plantings into the former ephemeral creeks that are now permanently wet and waterlogged. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have something occupying that niche, there's a lot of European water-loving weeds that'll thrive in the absence of any competition. So you've got to get the big drinkers in there in a restoration project to suck the area dry, not just Mm. keep spraying the same weeds again. Nature abhors a void. So something needs to go there Mm -hmm. that occupies that zone. Yeah, so there's some of the things. I mentioned all the prickles. So that's a big part of it. Now, one of the things about uh, protein insects is nitrogen fixation you got to think about it the air between you and me here dave and out there between everyone else 72 percent of the atmosphere is nitrogen yeah. nitrogen gas n2 and guess what we can't use it no <laughs> yeah, it's interesting so isn't it all of life on this miserable earth revolves on nitrogen fixation mm. so what are the nitrogen fixing shrubs or trees. What are they, Dave? 
Oh, you'd be looking at a lot of your acacias, you know. Yep. Your, uh, your, uh, so your keystone species in the Australian Indigenous, you know, woodland environment are the acacias. They're yeah. not the only ones. Yeah. There's all the bush peas, but yeah. they tend to have been wiped out by change in the natural ecosystem, change in, you know, fire regime and grazing, etc. You know, to look at the whole array of bush peas, you've got to go back to pristine undisturbed bush you know like i was at the brisbane rangers with a field naturalist club body group yeah. last week it was like the complete book of peas yeah half the group were photographing the orchids the rest of us were looking at all the peas yeah you know it was just amazing and so they were the nitrogen fixers but also so the, they're they're legumes you know the acacias and the bush peas are legumes so they're no different to your subterranean clover out here on the sporting fields mm-hmm or the uh, clover in your lawns, the, the peas in your garden that you rotate, the vetch in an agricultural concept, so the lucerne, etc. They have similar symbiotic associations yeah. on their roots. There's these nodules, a symbiotic association with agrobacterium, another nitrogen-fixing bacteria, which can breathe atmospheric nitrogen, convert it to forms that they use, nitrates, nitrites, etc., and assimilate it as amino acids. Amino acids are For organic growth. compounds mm-hmm. with a nitrogen group. Mm-hmm. Sorry, this sounds like high school science. <laughs> Sorry. And there's about 20 whatever more amino acids vital for life. They are the building blocks of protein, and we depend on them. Another overlooked group, because they don't have the spectacular flowers, yeah. right, of nitrogen-fixing plants is what? Oh. Different to the uh, legumes and the oh, acacias. looking at your legumes, really, for, for nitrogen-fixing. <laughs> no, there's another group of Australian plants, or globally, actually, yeah. with a root system, with a symbiotic association with a different group of nitrogen-fixing organisms. Doesn't come to mind. You got me there. Yeah. yeah. The she-oaks. The she-oaks. The casuarinas, the allocasuarinas. Okay. Their root system is a fibrous net yeah. with symbiotic bacteria okay. that take in nitrogen and turn it into amino acids, which turns it into proteins. So when we think about keystone species for restoring insect biodiversity, and we want to get away from nectar stations everywhere we overlook the she oaks yeah yeah and they support a very diverse insect fauna which translates to bird tucker exactly and look at how drought tolerant they are our local ones they're tough our two local uh main ones that i know of although you've got a couple of others down this side of melbourne haven't you yeah yeah Yeah. we've got the we've got the green she oak which is a smaller shrubby form yes Uh, but uh uh, Alacasturinia uh, paradoxa. Yep. And there's a swampy one as well. Yes, that's uh, right. Polidosa. Polidosa. And then we've got like the black she-oak. The black she-oak, one of my favourite, you yeah. know, unsung they're heroes. Nice, aren't they? they're yeah, really they're nice. almost like a little yeah. Christmas tree, aren't they? You can, yeah. You can put them in a narrow, narrow, narrow space. Yeah. You know, if you really want your neighbours to be gone, there's an Indigenous alternative between, you know, black she-oak, yeah. slender vertical stature yeah. uh, in a tight spot and um, tree violet 
there you go, there's your Indigenous neighbours be gone. Yes. Instead of that dreaded other thing that was pushed to death by, you know, oh, some very uh, hard-selling oh, no. <laughs> commercial yeah. <laughs> uh, advertisers. Yeah. Well, the she-oaks she are a really good habitat for black cockatoos as well, aren't they? Exactly. You well, get a, most cockatoos, yeah. really. And you get a group of she-oaks, the drooping she-oaks or the black she-oaks. the coastal ones. Yeah, yeah you the plant them in too. groups. You, you can almost create, once they get to that a few years old, mm. they then mulch the area around them. It's like they... They help with your gardening. I've seen that yeah. happen before. I've and so you get a nice before, yeah. mulch layer, and uh, you do still get some grasses persisting under, even under the thickest thing, but it's like small hand-weedable quantities. That's about all we've got time for today, folks. It's been fantastic talk, talking to George and uh, getting his insights into some, uh, some really interesting subjects on uh, Indigenous habitat gardening. Um got time for one more track i'm gonna flip it and not play reggae i'm actually gonna play some french ethio jazz style hip-hop and this is an act called ethioda with their track tis abbe thanks for tuning in hi everybody this is wit from spider bait when I'm passing through Karam, aside from slowing down to 50 kilometres an hour and reminisces about doing the Eel Race Road Rumba or the Watley Street Wiggle, I like to tune in to Radio Karam and get down with the good vibes. Don't worry about a thing. Because Atticus Health will make you feel alright Don't worry about a thing Because Atticus Health will make you feel alright If you got a tummy ache Or you don't feel right Or if you have a nasty rash Keeping you up at night Don't worry worry about about a thing. Don't worry. (laughs) Cause Atticus Health will make you feel alright.